of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Alex Quigley. Alex is a former English teacher and now Senior Associate at the Education Endowment Foundation. He is also the author of one of my favourite books of any genre to be released over the last 12 months, Closing the Vocabulary Gap. Now, as a maths teacher, I was more than a little hesitant going into the book with memories of failed attempts to shoehorn literacy across the curriculum into my maths lessons. But not only was I pleasantly surprised to find out how relevant the book was to me, I was simply blown away. And so I just had to get Alex on the show, and thankfully he said yes. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, Alex and I covered the following things and plenty more besides. I started out with the same questions I asked David Didow. As an English teacher, what's Alex's view on numeracy and literacy across the curriculum in schools? And also, to what extent should teachers of other subjects accept responsibility for literacy, especially us poor maths teachers? And then we get into the vocabulary stuff. So, why is increasing a student's vocabulary size so important? Is it just the size that matters, or the words that comprise that vocabulary? In other words, are some words simply more valuable than others? Now, why might talk and discussion in the classroom not be enough to improve our students' vocabularies? And what should we, as teachers, do instead? How big a problem is the curse of knowledge in terms of the words teachers often casually use in explanations and answers that students might not understand? Why is the strategy of looking into a word's entomology so powerful and what strategies can teachers use to get the most out of it? Does Alex have any favourite examples of maths words and their entomologies? What is, an, an exa- what is an example of a good whole school approach to improving our students' vocabularies? And I tell you what, this is a flipping cracker. I then ask Alex what piece of research has most significantly influenced his thinking or his approach to teaching. And finally, what does Alex wish he'd known when he first started teaching that he knows now? Now, I loved both reading Alex's books and talking to the man himself. As I said earlier, I think there's so much gold in here for both a maths teacher like myself, or indeed of any teacher of any subject, both primary and secondary. In my takeaway at the end of the episode, I will dive deeper into exactly how my practice has changed as a direct result of reading Alex's book and speaking to Alex on this podcast. Now, two quick plugs before we crack on. Obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, make it Closing the Vocabulary Gap. But if you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and all evil bookstores. And if you've read the book and you've got time to give it a quick review, that will be ideal. So long as it's a good one, of course. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged and quite simply 
incredible listeners, then I'm now offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to discuss the sponsor packages available. And there'll be a link to that address in the show notes. Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Alex Quigley. Now, regular listeners to the show will note that that's two English teachers in three episodes, and that follows on from Daisy Christodoulou, who appeared on the podcast twice last year. The Mr. Barton Maths Podcast, doing our bit to break down any maths-English divide. Surely some Nobel Peace Prize beckons in the future. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Alex. So we start, as we always do, with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, Favourite number is 11. Uh, Utterly narcissistic. Uh, My birthday's on the 11th of February. Um, No grand designs. Quite simple. Nice. I like it. Um, Number two, then. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, I'll be really honest. I can't say. There wasn't a topic that jumped out at me. Um, I was a student who struggled with maths and then didn't enjoy the struggle either. Um, I think I do prefer and still do. I prefer the statistics. I, I, I enjoy the kind of how the abstract kind of meets the real world context with statistics. So I think probably if there's anything, it's stats. I'll tell you what, that is the correct answer for me, Alex. That you, you, you're doing all right here. That's good. You get many people on this podcast who hate stats, but yeah, you know, you do, you're doing well there. That's fantastic. And um, question number three, then, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Um, it would probably be a football manager. Um, so football fan, big Everton fan. Um, but I really love just how the job is so kind of multidisciplinary. So it's got leadership. Coaching, mentoring, sports science, tactics, you've got to research, you've got to kind of lead a big team. I really love how varied it is. That's quite how I enjoy working. Oh, fantastic. At the time of recording, there's a vacancy at Old Trafford. Would you be interested in that, maybe? Um, I'd build up to it. I'd build up (laughs) to it. Superb. Um, before we dig into your career, just um, just a question I just wanted to ask you. Um, it's kind of new to the structure. This I only thought of it when I was when I was uh, coming home on the train, and that is um, as like a maths teacher speaking to an English teacher here. What what was your view on numeracy across the curriculum? Like when you were teaching, was that something that you found easy to kind of get into your lessons? Did it feel kind of bolted on? What what was your take on that as a kind of general policy? Um, I think. A little like literacy across the curriculum. It was always kind of a little bit tokenistic, a little bit bolt on. Um, I, I don't, I wasn't in a school where we actually emphasized numeracy across the curriculum. I think we always overemphasized literacy, um, and numeracy was the kind of the poor, poor little brother. <laughs> um, so I, I was never really, there was never an enforcement of doing any sort of strategies. And yet there wasn't really even an indication of how it might meaningfully be done. So I think, yeah, sceptical. I think obviously if you're a science teacher, if you're a psychology teacher, geography teacher, it's much more meaningful. I just think you've got to be really, really precise and have a really strong case if you're looking at numeracy in English. Um, And, you know, 
I think it's a little bit of a stretch. So you might note patterns in language, you know, you might identify, you know, some some indicators, but I think it's not as meaningful. So so why do it if it's not if it's not really meaningful and helps the students and their understanding? Why do it? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And, and and just to kind of flip it around, would that be the same then for, for literacy? Would would you, as me as a maths teacher, would would you not be expecting me to get involved in that, or it, it, or should it be partly my responsibility? So I think I think we have to be clear what we mean by literacy. And I think there's I think literacy across the curriculum, or kind of more formally content literacy. I've, I've got issues with that. I've got issues with kind of blanket spelling approaches across schools. I've got issues with, you know, emphasis on marking that's generic and, and bypasses subject domains. And yet when it gets to disciplinary, disciplinary literacy, I think there's something much more useful, much more specific. So if you look at vocabulary, well, you know, you mediate the subject of maths through the language of maths and it's not singularly vocabulary. You know, it's got symbols, it's got, you know, equations, etc. But mathematical vocabulary is intrinsic to understanding the subject. So for me, vocabulary and disciplinary literacy has value, but then not some generic forced literacy. Um, and I think, you know, I think the same with numeracy. I think there's, you know, a disciplinary numeracy in geography that's really valuable and really important. There's a disciplinary numeracy in science and noting the differences between mathematics and science and and how they might go about graph work and and what outcomes they're looking from and and how they need to process kind of problems differently is really important so for me i don't i i dismiss elements of literacy as it's been conducted in the past and yet i think when we think about how mathematicians read uniquely and how they pursue logic when we think about the language of mathematics being precise and clear then we're on to something useful. That makes perfect sense. I love it. Um, well, before we dig into um, the interview a bit further, I wonder if you can just uh, take us through your career, Alex, just from where it all started for you to, to where you are today. Yeah, so I taught for over 15 years, um, began um, teaching at Huntington School in York. Um, I was a very, a very average, and I'm being polite to my younger self, average <laughs> NQT um i did struggle a bit actually um i don't think i had a great training experience i trained in um, bangor north wales and i don't think i had a great experience for various reasons so it's a bit of a baptism of fire but i landed in a school that had really good support um it has a really mixed cohort of students so you go from you know teaching a level you know really highly academic students to you know really young students with you know really different mixed profiles so it gave me a really um broad but supported view of teaching um and i, I stuck around basically i stayed at huntington and became a bit of a running joke that i kind of did every job possible um <laughs> at huntington to the point where i was making jobs up at the end um <laughs> director of research school etc um and then as i kind of pursued my career i i went through the kind of typical trajectory of, of middle leader and then i moved into senior leadership but i also began to write and and to look a bit more outward and and that kind of took my career on um a completely different tangent really um i was invited by jeff barton who actually 
um, was head of English at one time at my school in the job that I, I took 20 years later. Um, and he asked me to write a book for new English teachers um, and really pleased to do that. I did that while I was head of department, which was a juggle, um, to put it um, politely. Um, and then that's, that led to just lots of opportunities. Externally, I got really involved with um, trying to translate research evidence, try to you know, look at cognitive science, look at the wealth of research out there for teachers, but try and navigate a way that made it useful to a broad audience of teachers, not just a kind of a, a niche, small group. Um, and that led me to um, taking on a lead role in the school where I, I bid for research school. Um, we led, I led a research school as director. Um, I led a large project a large EEF project called the RISE project and then more recently began to work on projects with primary schools and secondary schools to the point where last year I had the opportunity to step out um, and work for the Education Endowment Foundation um, and I, I took that opportunity it was a um, really great opportunity to just have a completely new fresh um, perspective work with lots and lots of schools um, continue my writing work and my communicating with teachers um, so yeah quite a unique role um, I've quite I've got quite a lot of flexibility um, but ultimately I work um, with research schools I try and communicate topics like metacognition um, literacy um, for teachers help with writing guidance reports and similar so so yeah kind of I've, I went up the typical route um, through school but then I've took a kind of a left turn um, which has been a, an eventful and interesting one. Superb and what's your official title these days Alex what would they call you? Um, it's it's brilliantly vague um, I am <laughs> I'm a senior associate um, so I do different things it's kind of it is a bit of a blanket title so I work on trying to support at the EF um, us to really mobilize um, our research so it's really pertinent for teachers um, try and develop um, the support tools that we have also also get more teacher voice involved in our work um, look at our projects um, and just bring that teacher perspective um, to what is a huge amount of expertise on research and evaluation and project design etc um, so it, it feels a bit like a natural continuation of what I did writing you know, in TES and Teach Secondary and, and on my blog, but in, in a way that I can be a more kind of structured, significant support for schools. Got it. Fantastic. Well, before we dive into your book, which will be the, the main subject of this interview, I always ask guests to pick a favourite failure out. Now, this may be a lesson that you've taught in the past that didn't go according to plan or something else in your career, yeah. but crucially, why did it go wrong and what did you learn from the experience? Um, I've already mentioned my kind of my bleak NQT year um, and, and it was a lesson from that. And I can't really remember the detail of exactly why it went wrong. It's kind of it's got a bit of a kind of a gloomy kind of dystopian setting. I was in one of our old um, kind of huts um, and it was a rainy Wednesday afternoon, um, a class of 32. Um, it was a top set back in the day where uh, we had sets in English. Um, and in many ways, they were a lovely group, but they also 
um, knew how to play an NQT. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think I'd had a really tough half hour where they just weren't listening. And I, and I gave them a bit of an option where I said, right, well, if you, if you don't want to carry on working, don't, you can carry on talking or you can do this task. Um, and that was a really stupid thing to do because actually 31 of the 32 carried on talking. <laughs> um, so I, I sat down um, in the chair and let them talk. The lesson was wasted. An hour was gone. Gladly no one walked in or kind of or, you know, any sort of observation. Um, one student, Natalie, um, she sat. I think she just out of sheer proximity. She felt bad for me, really. She was sitting right at the front. Um, Natalie carried on working. Um, it was the last lesson of the day, and I think it, it was mid. It was kind of midway through a really tough first term, and I did have that kind of "will I carry on teaching" kind of moment. You know, that kind of moment in the shower where um, you kind of you're struggling with whether you'll go back in the next day. Um, I did go back in the next day. Um, I had them in the morning, um, just before lunch, period three, and I remember speaking to them all. I remember being rather annoyed um and i kept them all back at lunchtime it was a blanket detention and yet you know there's contentious reasons about blanket detentions i get that but this one was called for um and i let natalie go to our lunch and kept everyone back and i spoke to them um let them go and i kind of had a little moment to myself where i kind of reasserted some sort of control um got some of my kind of reputation back and and i carried on and it and it felt it feels like i don't know if i've created a a great teacher narrative out of it and it wasn't so dramatic but for me that feels a bit like a turning point and and why it's a really nice story is natalie um ended up becoming a teacher herself and came back to huntington to teach um and she's a fantastic teacher um so I, I like to think at that moment she made a little choice in my lesson that saved me um and maybe i had a little knock-on effect that helped her too wow. um have you ever have you ever discussed that with her yeah yeah oh no i wrote about it in uh, my last book the confident teacher and i showed her i wanted her to be happy that i put it in and she was delighted she you know she thought it was great she didn't remember a thing of that lesson um <laughs> she just she she talks proudly i went on to teach her a level and she was the first student I taught who got full marks throughout the whole A-level. Wow. Um, so, she, so she focuses on that, and I get a bit of credit out of that. Um, but she doesn't remember that um, dark, gloomy lesson. Um, She's just become a mum this week as well, so congratulations, Natalie Elliott. Jeez, it's, it's interesting that. It's, um, it's an interesting favourite failure, that, and I'm sure I, I can certainly relate to it, and I'm sure lots of listeners will. It's, it's kind of the moment where you, you think that you're going to give students this choice and they're going to see the error of their ways yeah. and realize that you're right. And it, yeah. just, it just doesn't. Yeah. yeah it's a, absolute it's a, naivety. <laughs> it's a good one. that. Right. Okay. So I want to turn uh, our attention to, to your most recent book, closing the vocabulary gap. Now I'm going to make a confession here. This is the first subject specific book I've read that hasn't been about maths. I've read plenty right. of kind of general and kind yep. of cog science books and education books, but not like this is pure English. Well, that, that's what I thought going into it and um, pure English book, but I'd heard loads of good things on Twitter. I'd, I'd seen 
Amazon reviews. So I thought, I've got, got to give this a go. Read it and was absolutely blown away by it. And that's why I contacted you straight away to, to get you on the show. But as a bit of background, Alex, wh- wh- why did you want to write this book? And, and who is it aimed for? Is it is it aimed at English teachers um, kind of exclusively or, or are you hoping for a bigger audience? Um, I think why it came about, I'd been with the with the new curriculum that came about about three years or so ago and kind of Michael Gove initiated this kind of new tougher curriculum and I'd been having lots of conversations um, with primary teachers with secondary teachers and we were articulating this issue of you know that the curriculum's bigger it's harder and I was having that conversation with history teachers some that conversation with science teachers with maths teachers and with English teachers and interestingly I kind of knew the problem in English so I was much more interested in in why it was an issue elsewhere. I was I was in a senior leadership position and I wanted to better understand the issues across the curriculum. So I got digging into different textbooks. I got talking to lots of different teachers, um, music teachers, history teachers. And it came it came to me that actually there were underlying difficulties that underpinned the curriculum and actually that as even as an English teacher I'd rather taken them for granted so you know I'd experienced literacy across the curriculum and 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 really you know the best will there's only, there's one or two useful things that I took from it but never really had a strong um sense of urgency for my practice and and, and my subject um but the more I started having these conversations and looked at um key stage two texts reading texts the key stage two maths reasoning papers. I started to look at the textbooks at secondary. And actually, one of the things I could grab hold of in terms of the difficulty was this academic vocabulary. And then it kind of things started to click in terms of my experience in class with students who didn't have that verbally, didn't have that in their reading and writing. But then also the more research I read, the more it became actually a real strong thread, something that people could better understand. That was one facet of the difficulty of the new curriculum. Not singularly, it's not just all about vocabulary, but actually I felt like, right, well, there's actually lots of useful things to learn here. I think teachers in primary and secondary would gain from it, but no one seems to have cohered it for English audience. And there's some great books out there. So Isabel Beck's, um, robust vocabulary instruction and and there's lots of disparate interesting individual sources for science teachers for maths teachers but there wasn't anything that brought it together so I thought right well there's a real gap here uh, you know this will help people this help kind of build this richer mental model of how children learn and the words that they need as part of that learning process and then I thought well it's really tricky writing a book that you get a broad interest in so, you know, if you look at most edgy books, they're either for secondary school teachers or invariably for primary or even early years. And and rarely do you have crossover. And for me, I thought, actually, well, there's a real trajectory in terms of how you develop language before you ever get to school. And there's, you know, some real solid research around that early experience and how significant it is throughout school. So I thought there was a story there. I thought there was strategies that transcend these these kind of artificial boundaries between key stages. And I tried to write a book for secondary and primary teachers. Um, 
I know that in parts of the book, I think it's probably more useful for primary teachers and other parts more useful for secondary. But I think it, it has seemed to have crossed over. Um, I've been you know, amazed by how popular it's been. Um, and it seems to have transcended those boundaries. And and what's what I've really liked is that people have taken away elements from the book. But crucially, they've had to then bring their expertise to it. So, you know, I speak with utter humility in this interview around my mathematical knowledge. And I could never write a chapter about mathematical vocabulary without leaning heavily on on others. And and that wasn't my intent. What I wanted to do is almost give the kind of the core knowledge needed for mathematicians to then take that and, and bring their expertise to it and translate it to their key stage, translate it um, to their teaching practice. And that's what I've seen happen. I've been been really pleased with that. And I'm quite lucky, I think, that it's caught this kind of seam of people recognising it's a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's again, I've, I've, I've mentioned this in the past that, that sometimes I have a bit of an issue with kind of generic training and generic Absolutely, policies yeah. and yeah. stuff. And it, it almost feels like a compromise or or like it definitely works in one subject. And then it just you have to just shoehorn it into other yeah. ones. And, and I think like oh, maths teachers, we're, we're a funny breed and we, we think we're different and we certainly think we're special. And often we say, well, maths is different. Maths is different. But when I'm reading this, I'm, I, as we're going to dig into as we go through the conversation, there are definite things that maths teachers and, and teachers of all subjects uh, can learn. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I want to start, Alex, with a pr- pretty big question, and it might be a really obvious question, but but why is increasing a student's vocabulary size so important? Um, I think ultimately your knowledge of, of words determines your knowledge of the world. It, it's pretty much a proxy for your background knowledge. So if you get to a micro level of individual words and you know you build a curriculum around words and concepts and ideas, so... So they're just part of the fabric of the school curriculum. And the thing is, the school curriculum has a set of unique, sophisticated words that we don't use in our daily talk. So what we've got to do to flourish in school is to absorb this academic language and to begin to use it more confidently and more maturely and more skillfully to the point where we don't even recognize we're using it and it's any different. But it's so integral to every success we have in school that if you don't have a broad deep vocabulary you struggle you struggle in examinations right from the kind of the micro level of exam questions all the way to connecting up concepts and words and ideas and i like to bring it down to real specific examples so i often use um the example of the word prime and that it's one of those crossover words where it's got a very bound specific mathematical meaning and yet As an English teacher, I probably have an instant thought about using it in different ways. Um, You know, in the in the wider world, when you mention prime, I think about my Amazon debts. Um, (laughs) And and when you when you have the background knowledge of words and where you understand as a student that prime means something very specific in this lesson. And then I move across the corridor and it means something different. And when I'm reading and talking outside of the classroom prime has got a meaning that i need to draw upon and i need to connect it up to other elements of my knowledge actually you just start to recognize that vocabulary is kind of the academic curriculum but it's hidden in plain sight so 
you can't flourish without it. I mentioned about the key stage two maths reasoning papers. And one of the things I like to share with teachers is one of, one of those nice looking word clouds. Um, but what you see from that word cloud is you see lots of bound specific um, mathematical terms. And then you also see this sophisticated fabric of, of language that we use pretty much in school, but we don't use it in our in our typical talk. So. It's pretty much vocabulary is a proxy for accessing the language of school. And if you don't have it, then you don't flourish in school. And size really matters um, because you know people talk about, well, it's the quality of how many of the words that you know. And I, and I get that. So to really use and understand prime, you've got to have word depth. You've got to know the different meanings of the word. However, the more words you know, then the more able you are to connect up words together to make deeper links so actually breadth and depth go together in harmony and they're inextricably linked and i use um statistics in my book to try and kind of give people you know based on the best evidence about how this trajectory of vocabulary growth happens over time a lot of it happens incidentally so children who have rich language experiences in their home before school have a great start that's kind of a, a great platform and a crucial one then they get to school and the word rich, you know, get richer and, and often the word poor get poorer. They just don't have those language experiences outside of school. And it just makes it harder for them to grip onto teacher explanations, to engage in in academic talk and to read as fluently. So over time, it's really crucial that your your vocabulary growth is strong and that it matches your peers and that teachers are aware of it and, and help cultivate it, even though lots of our vocabulary growth happens outside of the classroom and factors that teachers can't control. That's interesting. Well, there's a number of interesting things you've said there, but it very much interested me about when you're saying that the kind of size thing, that the size of the vocabulary is, I mean, I don't know if you went so far as to say it's almost more important than the actual words that comprise the vocabulary, because my instinct would be that some words are more important for kids to know than others. And there's almost a hierarchy of a vocab that we want kids to have. But is that not the case? Is it best just to ensure that they know as many words as possible? Um, I think it's a bit of a combination. I think I think you can try to kind of um, arbitrarily set kind of word lists and you always kind of get unstuck. I think a rich language environment, lots of talk, lots of turn taking at home, lots of dialogue and reading in the classroom, hopefully lots of independent reading outside the classroom. All of those things grow your vocabulary and it happens exponentially. But I think there is for teachers a knowledge of a kind of an implicit hierarchy that we can better understand. So that's where I lean on the experts um, like Beck and McEwen and their tiers of vocabulary. I think it's a great proxy to help teachers quickly understand the matter. And, and what they pose is there's three tiers of vocabulary. Tier one, which is your daily speech, your daily talk. And because that's so frequent, you don't need to explicitly teach it and you don't as a teacher really need to tend to it in in any other way either. Then you have tier two and tier three. And they're the they're the key areas that we need to better understand and, and the nuanced differences. So tier two is the general academic vocabulary that we use across different domains. Um, you know, we use them in different subjects. So we might 
think of exam command words they're quite common um exemplification of tier two vocabulary but sophisticated words and and the word sophisticated is itself tier (laughs) two and then you get to tier three and and it kind of tapers off it's a bit of a pyramid so there are fewer tier three words but they are your subject specific vocabulary um you know acute angle coefficient bisect you know rotate you know you've got that specific language that's pretty bound to the subject domain a little bit tricky in maths because a lot of the tier three language in maths like prime as an example problematically has a general meaning outside of mathematics that is different so you get a lot of misconceptions i think maths is probably the subject that's most prone to misconceptions because if there's a few of those bombing around alex you know like sim similar is the worst one yeah because similar is a real specific meaning in maths and it's just it's completely like yeah it's completely different um in fact the the kind of other outside of maths meaning of similar really screws kids up in terms of similarity and just when you talked about the tiers of words one one thing that struck me there is and i I don't know if this is going to make sense or not but um Almost the tier two words, particularly when you, you use, I think you use the phrase exam command words. So I'm imagining yeah. things like um, examine, argue, convince, th- these, uh, yeah. is it these, these kind of words, describe yeah, yeah. and so on. Now, I'm thinking that kids can't, can't do any of those things, kind of almost can't understand what any of those words mean unless they understand the tier three vocabulary, particularly for yeah. maths. Like you, you yeah, can't, yeah. yeah. So it's not as if you need to teach tier two before tier three. This is just a way of categorizing them. Is, is that yeah. Right? And, and for me, I, I'm rather wary of the notion that we can just teach tier two separately in a bit of a mm. big list. Yes. Um, I think actually this, the contextualized use of language. So, you know, using the word expand, well, using that expand in mathematics is very bound, very specific. And yet in science, it's not, you know, it's got slightly nuanced, different meaning. So you have to, you have to recognize tier two words in relation to the subject domain as well. So you can't just kind of inform time, you know, pick an Uber list. Um, there are, there are um, lists, you know, that are out there in that do seem to be commonly transcending those subject boundaries. Um, Avril Cox said, it's a list I show in the back of the book. Avril Cox said's academic word list is around 500 words and they are the most frequently occurring words that appear in university texts. And that is an interesting kind of pinning the tail on the tier two, but I wouldn't recommend you, you teach 500 words. What I often recommend to teachers is you might look at, say, the top 30 and start to understand where they appear. Why do they appear so frequently? Where's their value come from? And then ultimately, for secondary school teachers, it comes down to how do they apply to my subject domain? And for primary school teachers, they have to look at language slightly differently again. And they need to think, right, where can I visit this rich layers of sophisticated language across the curriculum because they might be teaching mathematics in the morning but they might be teaching geography soon after and we know that with that kind of rich repetition and kind of you know reinforcement of language and the differences between different subject domains is really helpful for children so yeah i think the tier two doesn't live separately from the tier three um you've got to consider them together so 
and 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 it gets down to the specific examples so you know like expression like expand like estimate so estimate is one of those exam command words it means something really different to me as an english teacher than it does in mathematics yes. and i think the more words a child knows the deeper their understanding is of the academic language of school and the better and and almost automatically they recognize those differences and that, that's one of the problems actually because the students in our school whether they're year 13 year 7 or year 4 who are really flourishing who are really nailing the school curriculum they've got a breadth of vocabulary that is hidden pretty much and they're drawing upon it constantly and over time it's growing and growing and actually a lot of it isn't the teacher's direct influence they've had a really strong start they've got a rich language environment at home and they're absolutely motoring and they're just they're able they hear one explanation of a word they're able to quickly hook that into what they know and they're motoring forward and what we can't do is assume that well you know i've taught these words you know we're in year eight we taught that in year seven you know we can tick that off because the variability in that in that language knowledge the mathematical knowledge is so significant that we need to constantly be digging at it we constantly need to be tracking back and using assessment in an intelligent way um, and that comes down to thinking about words and thinking about our curriculum on that micro level Jeez, got it and you, you also you, you you put a figure on this don't you you say yeah. here that a word hoard of fifty thousand words that students need to thrive in school and beyond well, where's that fifty thousand come from alex yeah so firstly um if you're a linguist um you like to argue over things like words and you like to debate what what a word means and what a <laughs> word is and isn't so it's not it's not a simple one um so there's arguments about what is a word so is dog and dogs two words or one word is it a word or a, or a lemma which is another kind of term for a, a family of words so but when you get beyond that debate what we seem to see from researchers like david crystal nagy and anderson and michael graves is we start to get a good working estimate that for a well-educated adult who's you know, flourishing in you know whatever field they're in they've got a vocabulary of something between 50 and 60,000 words and for me then we look at that 50,000 and we think around a child leaving secondary school would have something like that word hoard and when we say having 50,000 words there's a real nuance there because mm. that means your receptive vocabulary the words that you know well enough to have a degree of understanding and that doesn't mean your productive vocabulary the words that you use every day because actually we use a really small vocabulary in our daily talk in our daily lives we use the most frequent 100 words in the english language 50 percent of the time so actually it's not about using 50,000 words every day we, we don't walk around like that that term better captures the wealth of language that we draw upon as we're talking to our colleagues, as we're reading a magazine article, as we're explaining uh, a tricky mathematical concept. Um, and it's not it's not a term, it's not a figure that's beyond debate like any statistic. It hides as much as it reveals. But I think why I found it really useful is it gives a bit of a, 
a bit of a target, a bit of a sense of the, the just the span, the breadth of vocabulary that children need. Um, and it seems to match with the prevailing evidence. Absolutely, yeah. And it was it was a, it was a surprising number for me how how big it was. Like if you'd have asked me to guess, I would have said maybe yeah. like, I don't know five thousand, six thousand, something yeah. like that. But fifty, yeah, it, it's big. And um, the, the other thing I want to ask you, Alex, before we move on to kind of practical things to improve students' vocabulary, is another thing you say in the book is you say evidence shows that alongside socioeconomic status, vocabulary is one of the significant factors that prove relevant to children achieving an A star to C grade in mathematics, English language, and English literature. Now, when I read that, my first thought was, and this is how kind of naive and uninformed I am about this whole thing, is it not just the fact that these kids are are clever, whatever that means, yeah. high intelligence, high IQ, which and they just have that they're good at maths because of that, and they have a big vocabulary because of that. There's a correlation, but the the kind of other factor that's coming into play is just their overall intelligence, and it's not the vocabulary that's helping them do better in mathematics. What's your, what's your take on that? Do, do we have any evidence that, that it's not that that it, there is actually a direction to this relationship? Well. I think it is. It's a strong correlation. I, I don't think it's causation. And I don't think mathematical knowledge could be stripped down to any singular factor. Yes. Um, you know, I think there are different domains of mathematics that draw upon, you know, so different aspects of reasoning, um, you know, different operations. So so actually, just to say vocabulary has this causal impact would be an overreach. And I don't think the evidence isn't experimental to that degree. The evidence does just match strong correlations over time. But I think what's clear is you indicated about general intelligence, about IQ. Well, we've got another strong correlation there in that your IQ, your worldly knowledge, your knowledge that allows you to access the curriculum is in part vocabulary knowledge. You cannot yes. articulate your reasoning without vocabulary. So it, it is a correlation. It doesn't mean that if we were to explicitly teach vocabulary at key stage three, we can you know, make the leap to improved outcomes at key stage four. But you wouldn't be able to find me a math mathematics teacher who wouldn't who would argue against the fact that the vocabulary of mathematics is not important. And I think for me, it comes down to word knowledge represents world knowledge and your background knowledge. And what we want really from the mathematical vocabulary, you know, when we when we ask children to estimate, when we give them instruction to factorize, what we want is that that vocabulary knowledge is completely automated. But they recognize what that word you know, means, how that links to, you know, the kind of operation, how that links to different aspects of reasoning, um, number bonds, all, all of these things. And that actually, when we're really confident and we've addressed vocabulary to a point where it becomes automatic and we don't need to concentrate upon it. And I think what you see for those children who flourish at GCSE and, and the students in that study um, that I cite, what they have is you know, a vast store of background knowledge. They also have skills and strategies that they apply confidently automatically by GCSE. And it's the same for vocabulary. So for me, it's not singular factor that determines mathematical performance, and it's not singular factor that determines English language performance either. It, you know, learning's much more complex than that. But if we take vocabulary as one thread of the access to 
the knowledge and understanding for a curriculum, then it's right there for impacting upon maths as much as it's impacting upon other subject domains. And there's interesting other research. Um, so research from the Royal Society, um, which was um, commissioned by the EF, who I work for. Um, and that Royal Society research was about science, and they looked at different factors which determine science performance. And one of those factors was the um, literacy capabilities of students, their ability to read. And there's a bit of debate around that. Well, you know, that you can be a scientist without being a kind of flourishing reader. And actually, it's about getting to the to the nuance of that, because you cannot be a scientist without being able to read the science. You know, the textbook, the graphs, that's all processes of reading you're bringing lots of of thinking and vocabulary knowledge to every given task in science so literacy is right there as a determining factor for children in science particularly disadvantaged children so it's you know it's the same for maths it's the same for english it's the same for science that you can't extricate vocabulary as a separate strand you can't actually just teach it separately and expect you know causal outcomes to you know, suddenly transform. It's an integral part of a rich you know, curriculum that's bound together knowledge, skills, strategies, etc. Got it. Well, at this stage of the book and at this stage of the interview, you've sold me on the dream that vocabulary is important. We need to improve it. So, so then I got to the bit of the book where how we go about improving it. And this for me was a bit of a game changing moment because um, and I'll just I'll just read, read this passage from the book. Yeah. You, you say around 2000 words make up 80 percent of our spoken language. Now, that, that surprised me for a start. And then you said this is important. If we simply encourage talk in the classroom without a structured approach, to using academic language in our talk it will not develop our children's language now the reason i found that significant is because i was kind of assuming as i was reading your book that as long as we get kids discussing and debating and talking in lessons then it's going to sort this vocabulary problem out because you know all these words are going to be bombing around but you make the point there that well i mean well you've said it there two thousand words make up 80 percent of our spoken language so we almost, if I'm right, we, we, we need to kind of explicitly plan ways to get this academic vocabulary into lessons because it's not just going to naturally yeah. emerge from students' conversation. Is that right? Yes, I, th I think basically our, our daily talk doesn't bear much relation to this academic code of school language. It's different for young children. So when you've got kind of a, a, a rich environment for children before they get to school, well, turn taking and, and lots of you know exposure to vocabulary and reading with parents and caregivers, that will have a significant impact on language development. But as children get older, of course, what they read, the language, the academic language of school gets more complex. It starts to separate itself from our daily language and daily experiences. And it becomes really niche and actually take you know, the language of mathematics we rarely use that outside of classroom contexts so it becomes really important then that we're explicit about that and we don't make any assumptions that children know and would grasp that language but then also as a mathematician that we're not using language and that students are you know, miscomprehending without checking upon it so i think it comes down to being really well structured about our classroom talk, about our explanations, about our questioning and about being explicit. So there's a 
in in the research literature there's something called dialogic talk and you can you know note the the dialogue as part of that dialogic and what the emphasis is is around when you're talking in classroom dialogic talk is very structured so it, ha it might be the teacher asking questions but they are you don't just have that kind of tennis match of quick answer you know and no development of thinking it's much richer so you might have a maths problem you might ask a child to explain you know their understanding and then you're asking questions then you're clarifying and and it's that rich structured dialogic talk which really matters to develop thinking as a mathematician as a geographer and then also you made the point about kind of almost scripting i think there's actually a value to being really disciplined and structured about how we talk and that might involve script so engelman's direct instruction is quite famous for having these really tightly scripted um processes for teachers to follow yes. um some teachers balk at the idea um i think actually it feels odd but if you've you know started to work with them you can start to feel um the usefulness of them and in many ways for a secondary school teacher who might use a, a textbook they're not a million miles away but what that offers is a real um process a real set of thinking about being precise about our explanations so if we're talking about factorizing then we need to be really precise if we're doing a worked example of that then we need to have a very stepped clear logical language and actually if we just leave that down to general talk it might go well with with most good math teachers you know we'll make ourselves clear and understood but the more precise we can be about that the better i think and particularly when you get to the subject like maths and you've got words like acute or congruent and irrational and and linear and they mean something very specific and they mean something different in pretty much most of the students minds a lot of the time then we have to be clear about that we have to be explicit we have to go hunting down different misconceptions and um, so if we can consciously craft talk and dialogue if we can scaffold language if we can think hard about explanations and worked examples then we we basically mitigate this this gap between daily language and then the sophisticated language of our subject yeah i think you're right and it, it's hit upon something else this alex now about a year ago if you'd have said to me are you a fan of scripted lessons i would have said get out of here no i'm not yeah. absolutely ridiculous and then i spoke to i think greg ashwin was the first when i interviewed him and he started talking about kind of centrally planned lessons not scripted but essentially yeah. the head of department planning a structured <clears throat> lesson that, that, that all, all members of the department would follow and then danny quinn who's head of maths at michaela school she was talking about uh, kind of the next step along kind of the the, the questions had been chosen suggested words you use to introduce these questions and so on and so forth and now when i'm reading your book and i was thinking about this i was thinking of of me as a as a, a young inexperienced novice teacher when i've got like a million other things yep. occupying yep. my working memory behavior time all this kind of stuff or all the things that expert teachers kind of automate and so on and so forth the last thing i was thinking about is the language i was using so i'd be chucking in these words left right and center and it's classic kind of curse of knowledge or whatever you want to call it but I wasn't I wasn't even thinking about the vocabulary I was using and that could be a major sticking point for some students so 
Again, I think this is another argument for these centrally planned lessons, if not scripted lessons. It's just one less thing for the teacher to have to worry about in that moment. And again, once teachers get more experience, they can start to take more control over it. But with vocabulary being such an important thing, as you're arguing it is, it almost feels too risky to, to, to leave it to chance that it's going to be that it is going to just be covered in the right way in a lesson, if that makes sense. Well, I think there's a couple of things there, because actually it almost isn't, you know, vocabulary is just part of the fabric really of the explanation which is which is the thing we need to ensure students know and understand so i think as a profession we we take for granted things like explanations we take for granted that we can all do great modeling and worked examples in in my last year or so i've been researching into metacognition about this this process of how in these different subject domains we plan we monitor our thinking we evaluate and it's such a subtle process. It's so complex that it's not easy to just kind of, you know, enact that. And you won't do it consistently. I think what you took there upon, which is important, is the teacher experience. And it reminds me, if I go back, I'm kind of, I'm having some kind of torturous flashbacks of my NQT <laughs> year a bit. Um, but what I, what I used to do in that, in that first year is I used to script my introduction. I would write up to up to two pages in length i'd script my introduction it was so critical for the lesson in many ways to set the tone you know think about behavior but also yes just to be really clear about what i was talking about because frankly i wasn't very confident yes then actually that scripting had real value for me now 15 years later i think actually a full script or even a kind of a, 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 a script in part would potentially in part hamstring me so yes if i was you know doing a worked example in english I, i'm not going to um, attempt to model a mathematics example <laughs> if i was going to do a worked example in english then actually i would having gone round that block countless times have real clear sharp steps that i'd follow i used to have processes using multiple whiteboards that i'd become very practiced on I, I knew what misconceptions would, would pop up, you know, given the text I'd study, given the writing processes I'd follow. So actually then I just didn't need a full script. And yet still in my 15th year, I loved nothing more than getting a good scheme of learning with lots of tools, with good background knowledge that fi- fills in any gaps, with resources that offer me the chance to adapt intelligently when I need it. And I think... That's where we need to be much more careful and supportive as a profession, not just for new teachers, for all teachers. I think everyone benefits from centrally planned lessons because then you have a central well of knowledge and expertise, which is so important. Um, But for me, yeah, the scripting, the, the planning, that can be a process that's done together. And I think one of the examples in my um, year at Huntington where we looked at the key stage three anew, um, you know, before kind of Ofsted indicating anything this year about um, how knowledge reaches your curriculum. And we were looking at our key stage three schemes of learning, degree of challenge, what text we had, etc. And one of the things we, we chose to do was to, to select what we call the keystone vocabulary alongside those units of work. And in romantic poetry in year seven, for example, 
that meant just six words and it meant words like industrialization the word romanticism um nostalgia and we chose to explicitly teach those words i was the one for that unit of work that created those resources to save everyone else and, and we all kind of shared that job but we in that discussion what were the words that were important to this topic and it wasn't just right here's a word list because actually those words were about what is the rich contextual knowledge and understanding that children need to build a mental model of romanticism because we know that the misconception the word romantic is falling in love that you know that type of thing it's love island it's nothing to do with wordsworth <laughs> and that what we needed to do is to build a real rich mental model of that topic and the starting point for us was words and we selected those together we created resources and i can remember some of my best teaching you know years in was teaching individual words like nostalgia and of course that was only a jump off point to lots of rich conceptual understanding digging into poems and prose and you know historical factors and debate but that was a great starting point and in in a, in a fashion the resource and tool i had was in part a script that i could follow really usefully and because i was expert enough you know i think i was able to deviate from the script and respond yes. to the nuances of what happens in the classroom and i mentioned earlier about dialogic talk i think what happens when we're working through a complex mathematical problem is that students bring solutions we didn't expect them to bring to the table they yes. also bring misconceptions and Definitely. they also you know show errors that we didn't quite anticipate too so often you know we need to be able to go off script and then jump back onto script and i think if we're talking about centralized resources and for me a textbook can be a script can be notes can be tools if we can work on that together then we can actually get consistent language and we can just at the margin just maximize our expertise yes makes makes perfect sense again alex and um, i i want to move on to them what, what this kind of structured approach might might look like because you, you say something else dead interesting here and again i'll just quote quote this back, back at you you yeah. say the research indicates anything between four and ten exposures for a new word can best establish a word long-term memory so that it can be deeply understood and used by students using a word four times or more has obvious ramifications for a t for teaching a curriculum now um when i read that first thing i thought is well we we do that in maths because we start at the start of a topic we print out a word list the kids stick it in the back of the books but then i thought well that's absolute nonsense because that that's that's not regularly exposing it to, to them yeah. there's, there's no there's no deep connections being made or anything like that so i'm guessing that's a load of rubbish so what what is a good way an effective way that's going give, to give kids this four to ten exposures in a way that's going to stick okay so i think first it's important as well to be critical about that statistic because it's one of the more contentious um research points around vocabulary i think what we we know a lot around the evidence that attends the gap and that the gap is the gap exists i think we're less certain about the evidence about how we can teach in the classroom to mitigate it so i think the between four and ten 
is a bit of a proxy figure for let's think about repeating things meaningfully in the yes. classroom. I don't think there is a kind of four is the magic number because, of course, some words are more complex. You know, so sometimes children can just fast map what we call fast map a, a single word. So they might be able to, you know, quickly in two or three exposures grasp that. But, you know, scale factor or, or linear that might just be a little bit more tricky and that might need more exposures. So yes. I don't think there is a, a fixed number. All right, it's important to say that. But I think there's a really useful step here from cognitive science around spacing and, the, and this notion that, you know, to remember things, to kind of take them into long term memory, then you know we need to repeat them meaningfully. We need to talk about words. We need to use them as much as we need to practice any, you know, kind of skill or or repeat any knowledge to consolidate it in long-term memory so so for me that kind of repeated exposure vocabulary is just part of the on you know factorizing on monday we might come back to it wednesday you know, that's quite natural but i think what we i probably recommend is a bit more of an explicit thinking through that process so factorizing on monday technology there then do we quiz on friday do we then think about six weeks later um we've, we're going to re revisit that topic that language um and it's about that precision it's about that thinking really hard about what are the terms that children know they don't know um and how do we consolidate that and and it, that's where quizzing questioning these kind of small strategies but that are part of an expert teacher's repertoire come into their own um so there isn't a, a kind of a fixed number but i think every maths department can sit down and start to think right okay so this is our topic and we're going to need to practice this topic um to consolidate and get this understanding in long-term memory and that's probably true of vocabulary and then we start to think about the strategies and how we might do that. Um, again, there's no singular kind of silver bullet strategy. But if words, if we're introducing new topics with words that we know are important to be able to become automatic to start to um, understand the maths, then we're probably going to pre-teach some of those words. And we might have a process for pre-teaching. And then we might think, how do we quiz these words just to consolidate and how do we question and we and, and what we find is that actually we're not just teaching vocabulary we're just thinking really hard about curriculum fantastic okay so um when i was reading through this particular chapter again this was another kind of watershed moment for me and i, I don't think my life is going to be the same um ever since i read this bit and I, <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm not <laughs> but i'm not even a, a, exaggerating there because now th th i'm going to embarrass myself here i wasn't entirely sure a what this word meant and b how to say it but etymology am i saying that right yeah. there etymology yeah. Fantastic. yeah yeah sure right so i'm reading this and as soon as i read it i thought that is something that can transfer directly to maths i can see it fitting in not in kind of a shoehorned way but in a real natural yeah, sure. way to introduce a topic and I can see this being really powerful and effective. So can you can you just tell us a little bit about kind of the strategy of delving into word etymology and, and why it can be so powerful? 
Yeah, so I th- chapter three, it's been really interesting how you know, obviously people talk to you about the book and, and they kind of bring up aspects of it. And it's been this um, aspect of etymology and morphology that's really stood out for a lot of people at primary. Um, I've seen a huge amount of work at primary. And and of course, there's been expertise you know, using this at primary um, for a long time. But for a lot of people, it, it's gained traction. And then at secondary as well. And I think to put it simply, etymology is you know, the history of words. Morphology is the word parts. And I think they go together because when you start to break the word down into parts, its root, its prefix, its suffix, then you start to have... Um, the collection, the parts of words and their histories. And in science and mathematics, it's really helpful because pretty much the language of science and maths and geography is it all has Greek and Latin origins. Yes, it's all quite consistent. So there's a real wealth of foundational knowledge that is just offered up for us. Um, And what's really particularly good is a lot of the challenge of maths and science is the abstraction and the abstraction of the concepts. And what a lot of the terms do, um, the, le- the Latin and Greek terms, is they make things more concrete. Um, and that's where a lot of the words have, de- have derived from these kind of ways to try and make um, complex ideas concrete. Um, and it's really simple, you know, on one level, but actually... It's hidden to people and it's not simple until, you know, like you said from reading the book, it actually it didn't strike you until you really yes. thought about it, that there's something quite consistent, valuable, useful there. So, you know, it is part of the fabric of the academic language of school and, and of the world. So, you know, common roots like oct. So we know octagon, eight different angles, sides, but children don't really make the link between octagon, October, octave, octopus. And actually, when you start, even from a very young age, start to trigger those associations, actually, it triggers a whole family, you know, a rich depth of meaning that is really helpful for lots of children. And it starts to make, you know, terms concrete. So octopus, you know, why, why might an octopus, you know, have that name? octave why does it have that name how does it link um to this um, notion of eight and it just unveils a whole fabric of meaning and because that fabric um is connected it helps it to be better understood for children so it's something they're more likely to retain it creates these connections and stories for them um ed hirsch um the um academic uh, he describes um, knowledge and words as mental velcro and that the more words you know the more background knowledge you have it's like hooks for velcro the more hooks you have and that, i really like that notion for vocabulary and i like that notion in terms of if you know the etymology and the morphology of of those words in maths and in science actually it gives you more memorable hooks so you better understand those words and it, and it's a real great memory strategy and i think that's why they they prove useful and they don't and they're not a bolt on because actually when you understand the fabric of the language and of the words then it just roots you straight in the concept um and that's useful and valuable 
I, th- I think you're right. And even like when you were saying that, like when you were listing all those oct words, I thought October, but well, that doesn't work because that's the, the 10th yeah, month. But then even yeah. those exceptions, there's a story behind it that, yeah, that then makes you remember it even more. So it's, it's kind of a win-win situation. But I was just wondering, Alex, in terms of, before we kind of perhaps dig into a, a couple yeah. of other maths examples, in terms of kind of practically tapping into the use of this, what ways have you seen teachers use this effectively in lessons? Well, I, I think first, I think just to pick up on that last point around October and the kind of, and and the, it does throw up um, in kind of linguistic terms, these false friends, mm-hmm. that it looks like that, but it yes. isn't quite. Yeah, I like that. Um, and, and actually, as you say, that it can raise a misconception if, if you don't address it. But as long as you address it, it actually just deepens the meaning. Yes. And if you think about, you know, how many times in maths do, do we need to give an example and a non-example yes. to consolidate the understanding? So so actually that false friends notion, it is a threat. You know, you've got to be clear about it. But actually, it's a teachable moment as well. And it can actually deepen that understanding. Yes. Um, for, for me, I think, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the kind of that number sequence and oct and dec, etc. I think for younger children there, what you've got is a real rich kind of just build up of knowledge, which starts to connect, you know, mathematical abstractions to the world. Um, as you probably get to more complex concepts in secondary, I think there is some due repetition, but I think it's then about being really judicious because i think there's a kind of an opportunity cost if you're you know forever you know breaking down words and looking at the root of every word you you know you just might get through things and i think it takes some judicious work around you know linear scale factors does the root of factor offer us something useful does linear offer us something useful if a word is we know a common word like prime does that offer something useful and and actually i think when you get together as a group of teachers you start to unpick those things and actually i think prime and oct and and there's certain words that really offer useful gains and then there might be others linear scale factors you know for some older students which doesn't quite have the gain but for me you don't always need to kind of have this consistent instruction around word roots because once you've started that process off you might do some of it in year seven and year eight what you create i call it in the book and and researchers have labeled it before i word consciousness Mm. what you trigger is independent strategies where students ask those questions themselves students make those connections themselves so you get to a point where you don't need to teach this you know, every lesson, you don't need to start your lessons with these kind of word history kind of, you know, theses. Actually, it can be something that's dexterous, something that's just woven through the curriculum. And I think where it's done best is where teachers are thinking hard from a subject specific perspective about what are the keystone vocabulary terms and then where and where not does it give us a real gain to dig into the words in more depth and i think we've got to have this um criticality around not falling for word lists you know not having a wall display that we never really use that we've got to make sure 
that. If we're going to devote time to digging into words, digging into those concepts, then it's got value. And and this is where I offer in the book lots of exemplification. Um, however, it you know my efforts would always run aground because I don't bring that disciplinary knowledge around where it's most pertinent and where it isn't. Um, one of my experiences um, as a senior leader was to get to do lots of lesson observations in different subject domains. And I was a line manager of science. Um, and on one level, you know, my, my knowledge of science is so weak that you really have to question me being in the room <laughs> and, and giving guidance. You know, and, and that's a fair question. Um, on another level, I, I had a student perspective yes. um, for good or ill. And, and sometimes the explanations, you mentioned earlier that curse of the expert, where the science teachers have this, you know, well-crafted explanation, but, but quite complex. And then the worksheet was drawing upon the explanation. And then you could just walk around the room and just, I, I, this happened at A-level as much as it happens at Key Stage 3, where I just posed just a couple of questions about understanding and on a word level often, and, and some students completely confident, completely automatic knowledge, and then others didn't in the very same class after the very same explanation. Mm. And I think this is where that subject specific expertise, that disciplinary knowledge has to be drawn upon. So I'm not chickening out to say, you know, where have I seen this? You know, is there a kind of a, a formula for maths? Well, I, I am chickening out to a degree where I don't think there is a singular way of doing it well but i think there is something about the explicit language of the subject domain about digging into that about knowing which words pose challenges for students which words elicit misconceptions and then where we can find rich meaningful connections and i think when that happens when teachers have that curriculum time to build their expertise together and, and you know share those resources then what you start to see is a precise focus on the language of the subject as well as the bigger ideas and understandings we want to draw from the curriculum and are you seeing this alex as a way to introduce a concept so you're you you're are you thinking oh have you seen it used as uh, the kind of the start, the introduction, the background, yeah. more so than something that comes halfway through or even at the end when you're looking back at a concept. Um, I think from my from the conversations I've had and from when I've observed at primary and secondary, I've been quite lucky, really. Um, I think it's been a pre-teaching strategy, um, the etymology and morphology, um, and it's been an introductory introduction to the words and the topics and the concepts um, predominantly. But of course, realistically, even if it's pre-taught, then it needs consolidation, it yes. needs questioning, it needs quizzing, it needs revisiting and all those things. And actually, where I, you, know, you see those brilliant moments where a teacher draws upon their physics knowledge, their maths knowledge, their English knowledge, and they just draw out the meaning of a word. They draw out you know, it could be etymology. Um, they could connect a, a kind of a mental model and analogy um, that is really meaningful. And I think, I think that there's there's definitely space for that kind of just instantaneous kind of teachable moment around the language of our subject. 
but it seems that this careful pre-teaching with consolidation with you know kind of so pre mid and post teaching really that vocabulary is just part of the fabric of teaching the domain it's part of the fabric of deeply understanding a topic that you can just wrestle and use and understand those words to the point where they become part of the fabric of how you express yourself as a subject expert yeah and i think you've hit another thing there that it, it you could do the the most brilliant introduction in the whole wide world explaining where this word comes from connecting it to a yeah. story and so on and so forth but if you don't then as you're teaching this continually revisit like remind me where this word came from and yeah. or, or include it on a low stakes quiz or a homework it's all that effort's just going to be wasted. It's it's just going to decay and so on and so forth. It's got to be revisited, just like anything else has got to be revisited, right, to, to make it stick. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, you could do it better than I, but whenever, if I was to, you know, give you a topic, um, key stage three, you would probably have a bit of a bank of, right, here's the analogy I used to explain this when I first introduced yes. it. Here are the common misconceptions that I try to address. Mm. Here, here's the classic worked example <laughs> yeah. that I, I use. You know, kind of, you know, and and you can get it can become cliched. You know, pizzas and angles, and you know, kind of, you know, some primary lessons that kind of um, classics of their kind. Yes. But it becomes the same with vocabulary that it's just part of the established way that you teach and you create those hooks, and that you wouldn't ever think that you've taught one explanation and one worked example and that's the end of the story and it's just again i, I keep on using that, that that term fabric it's just part of the fabric of the curriculum and 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 it's a rich tapestry but it's one that we need to keep on coming back to the same threads yes makes perfect sense and just just as a little treat to, to math listeners alex <coughs> any any other any favorite kind of maths words and their etymology that you've come come across in your in your reading yeah so so if these if these were shared when I was doing my GCSE maths, maybe I'd have um, <laughs> hooked in a little bit more. Um, I like so I like how not all mathematical terms have those kind of Greek and Latin roots that we know that the kind of there's an Arabic Arabic history um, for mathematics and early mathematics. That's really interesting to dig into. And the term algebra being um, one such term. Um, and the kind of full translation really is quite an elaborate one. Um, but if you just break it down to the word parts, so algebra, um, the reunion of broken parts and jabara meaning to reintegrate, to reunite, to consolidate. I think there's something really nice how That's the word nice. algebra actually has a really concrete sense of Re reunifying broken parts of kind of creating these mathematical holes and equations um and and it's back to that example of often a word's abstract algebra is you know can be the ultimate abstraction for for some children but even the word itself has that very physical concrete history that tells you something about its meaning that's lovely that i really like that and any other maths ones no <laughs> uh, <laughs> well this fine it's like homework for listeners to go yeah. off and uh, research well, what, yeah one of the um one of the things <laughs> i like to do um because and you can and i i do think there's a little danger you know you can get a bit intoxicated by it and start to kind of just give lots of examples and children love them they're really curious about them and i'll often in training 
um, give one story about kind of spellings and some spelling anomalies and some word histories. And then I give a couple of examples and I don't tell people the answer. And then actually they get really frustrated. <laughs> and, and it's that point where I, I do want students in my class asking for more. I do want them digging it out themselves. So I, you know, kind of, I could tell you more examples. I could go on all night. I'm, I'm exciting at parties. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, I think there's something really important about the curiosity that this creates. And it, and, and it is about connecting up that meaning. I think children naturally want to know. And, and when you give them some of these hooks, it just gives it gives a real curiosity to what we do. Absolutely. You've, you've sold me on that one. Um, in, just in terms of kind of the whole school approach to this, I'm, I'm guessing, yeah. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've kind of covered this, but just to state it explicitly, you said at the start that perhaps literacy across the curriculum isn't isn't perhaps every teacher's responsibility is possibly more yeah. more the English department just like numeracy numeracy is but vocabulary that's something that yeah. we'd want every teacher to take responsibility of their own kind of domain specific vocab would, would that yeah. be right yeah yeah you can't you can't you simply can't communicate a subject without being inducted into its specialist language so yeah and in terms of kind of because again sometimes i'm wary of, of whole school approaches particularly yeah, sure. whether it's kind of growth mindset and it's like yeah. just a few token posters and so on and so forth are there any kind of whole school approaches to promoting a better vocabulary that you've seen that you think actually you know that that's decent that okay so i think what precedes that is actually making sure that as a whole school you share with teachers what we mean by vocabulary why it might be an issue where it's specifically an issue so my experience at school and what i try and share both in the book and training in other schools is what what why the vocabulary gap is established what it is and then even if i'm speaking to secondary teachers i always show examples from primary school around reading comprehension um including uh, i use the um maths key stage two reasoning paper quite a lot because it's just a, such a great example of how language can actually be a barrier um but then i make sure that on a subject specific level that we look at you know textbooks we look at passages from textbooks and we're really clear what we mean by vocabulary and and what we mean by when there is a gap so i'll often use passages and i'll black out some key words just to replicate how some students would inevitably be you know, reading that passage yes. in the class because they don't quite have that breadth of vocabulary. And, and I think it's really important to establish why vocabulary is important and how it might be hidden in plain sight for many teachers for understandable reasons. So if you're a mathematics teacher, you've not, and a lot of your training time wasn't invested in reading. Yeah. It actually, you know, it was about getting to grips with the maths, but, that's almost a bit of an expert position where you've you've automated all of that all of that word knowledge all of you know what those words indicate all the operations that derive from those um, complex words and that actually we need to start seeing things from a novice's perspective so before we get into the strategies if you don't understand the issue then your strategies will run aground and you won't know why so for me, it's important to understand the problem a bit more deeply. Absolutely. Then I think it's about, right, so here's an established problem. 
we've looked at some passages we've talked about the issue we know particularly this is an issue for disadvantaged children in their talk in their reading in the every, everything they do in in school academically but now we also need to draw upon our experiences so if i'm I'm speaking to primary teachers or secondary teachers. I'll always ask them to bring some of their classroom materials for that week. Um, and we'll look at those and we'll look at, you know, how is reading in mathematics different on a disciplinary level to reading in English? And, and when you start to do that, you start to really quickly and very easily recognize that in mathematics, you read in different ways to historians to English teachers. So so this notion that, well, literacy, that's done by English teachers. Well, a certain type of reading, reading mm. like a literary critic, writing like an, an English student writes, which is a little bit artificial, that is done by English teachers. But reading like a mathematician isn't touched upon by English teachers at all. You know, most of us don't have the first clue of it. And talking like a mathematician isn't something that you get from debate in an English classroom. Yes. So actually, this it, it comes down to the expertise of the discipline. And what you see are strategies that, that do transcend the domain. So things like pre-teaching vocabulary can, can transcend a subject discipline. It can be useful and, and a typical starting point in lots of different subjects. But of course, it would still have distinctive differences and one if we if we boil it right down to say one single strategy to kind of work that through a little one strategy i like a lot is the freya model um my daughter's called freya so that's one of my kind of um, <laughs> reasons why i like it um but it's interesting so it's just basically a graphic organizer so if you're not seeing it, it's got the word in the middle and then slightly different variants but it's got the definition examples non-examples etc and in English, in science, and in mathematics, it's it's slightly different. But in essence, it's a graphic organizer. We know graphic organizers are helpful because they help compartmentalize complex ideas, break them down for novices in ways that we often don't do if we just you know, use them in explanations, etc. So I've seen um, the Freya model used in science. I've used it myself. Um, for GCSE English, and I've seen it used in primary um, for geography and history and, and kind of humanities topics. And each time it was slightly different, um, and the language was slightly different. Um, in English, I adapted the frame model, so one of the words I'd have in the middle was chartered, and one of the four quadrants was themes. Um, you know, what themes does that word link to? completely useless to a science teacher and maths teacher <laughs> but for the maths teacher you might have you know the term in the middle and then examples non-examples and and they might be graphical as well you, know, you don't need to you know create this kind of written language for these frame models and again that wouldn't be useful for me the common principle of the frame model is to deliberately explicitly break down a complex term and concept and devote that teaching time to it because it's got that value. Yes. And that helps every child. It invariably helps children who've got limited subject knowledge more because it's breaking it down for them. Um, and it's done in different ways in different subjects. So I think for me, that's where it exemplifies how 
there are some generic strategies but they always need to be applied in subject specific phase specific ways mediated by an expert teacher who knows that class and that goes for dialogic talk that goes for frame models that goes for pre-teaching etymology it goes for you know the wealth of strategies that i include in the book so i, I try and break down this this barrier between literacy across the curriculum we're all doing these same three things yes there might be some things that are generically useful but invariably we still have to adapt them so one of my the one the one experience i've had around whole school literacy that i could target and say that that meaningfully changed my teaching practice and and the quality i think of what i did was um, no hands up which yes. is you know simple generic strategy used badly it can be it can be a really poor strategy but used well carefully trained to use it helped me elicit feedback more evenly more consistently thinking harder about who i ask questions of in my classroom it enriched the dialogue it gave me better feedback about where students were kind of calibrating what they knew and what they didn't know about the subject i was teaching that no hands up work for me and and i'm sure there was a teacher in the math department who that worked well for too and yet we would still do that differently and in year two if you try no hands up you've got you know you've got a job on you know so you, know, you kind of i have my two young children at the dinner table putting their hands up you know the kind of so you've got to still have age specific differences subject differences there are some generic strategies for the, for the vocabulary but still they're mediated by the teacher through the subject specific you know expertise that makes that makes perfect sense and, and just on that the, the freya models because i again i'm, I'm it's re relatively new concept to me but yeah. I've, I've, I've looked into them i'm i'm a big big fan of them i particularly like the use of example and non-example i'm obsessed yeah. with non-examples if you just use examples all the time kids get a, a very distorted view of a concept yeah. and so on sure. and so forth can i just ask practically um what is it? Is it kind of the kids get a blank frame model and then there's a bit of a discussion, a bit of explicit teaching, the kids fill them in and then do they keep them in their books, in a file? What what, what yeah. have you seen that works there? Okay, so this is a little bit like a knowledge organiser. Okay, so if I draw the parallel, they're both tools, they're both templates and they can be both used in really different ways. So a knowledge organiser or a frame model could have a pre-prepared full you know answer that is shared with students who we've got or we're expecting to know a fair bit maybe or we're sharing it right at the start of a unit of work and that that is a tool we're going to use and talk about and, and come back to it could be a blank template the frame model could be blank and you could put the word in the middle and then you ask students to fill it in however if you're expecting that then they probably have to have dealt with a few frame models before to actually yes. understand what it looks like so i've actually seen lots of different practice most of the practice that i've observed the uh, the practice i observed in primary and in the science lessons was the teacher modeling that frame model so the word was in the middle but yes. actually the teacher was writing around it um, on my blog one of my blogs is on the frame model and there's a picture of one of the the boards in the science classroom um, so the most typical has been walking students through it as a worked example. But I'd expect that 
as some sort of it might be revision for the topic it might be part of a quiz where that same frame model a couple of weeks later or, or a new term could be easily a blank template and students then have to complete it so it's a really versatile tool like a knowledge organizer you can make assumptions you can use it badly or yes. you can use it really skillfully um i've, no, I've tip, as i said i've typically seen it with the teacher modeling but i'd anticipate that over time students will be able to use it and fill them in themselves and and it's the same i think for good knowledge organizers i wouldn't expect a child to devise a really skillful knowledge organizer in the first instance but if i'm teaching an a-level class and we've taught a text or a topic then i'm you know i am expecting them to be able to make some good choices so i think it depends like most things no that's that makes that makes perfect sense that that's brilliant and kind of two more well one's not this isn't even a question it's more an observation so feel free just to ignore this alex i don't even i don't even know where i'm going with this but um when i was when i was reading um your book and we got to the bit about reading and and about how the tricky vocabulary kind of stops reading being enjoyable it stops students being able to access the text and so on the kind of parallel i was drawn with my own experience with maths is it's very much like trying to to solve a a tricky kind of multi-step maths problem that if you don't have the basics in place if the if the maths problem is like a five mark epic from a gcse exam and it requires you to add a couple of fractions together solve an equation and then convert some units if you can't do those three basic things not only you're not going to be able to solve the problem you're not going to learn anything from the experience and it's going to be incredibly frustrating because you're not going to be able to plot you from the you plot your path from the start to the finish yep. because you, you're going to keep hitting these stumbling blocks so i just drew the parallel with with reading there and as i say i i don't, I don't know what to make of that but just the fact that if it's just keeps coming back the more i read it just keeps coming back to this that if you you're expecting students to do a complex process whether it is solving yep. a maths problem or reading a tricky text if the basics aren't in place they don't learn from it and it's incredibly frustrating. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the models um, drawn from research that I use in the book is Scarborough's reading rope. And and what that rope denotes effectively is the different strands of knowledge and, and understanding that makes up reading. Reading's a really complex act. It looks simple. You know, it often is as apparently fluent and instantaneous, but that is after you know, a lot of expert practice. And actually, vocabulary is one of the threads in the reading rope. And it's and it's a singular thread. If you don't have vocabulary knowledge, then reading comprehension, the whole act of reading is difficult. You don't build the mental model or whatever you're reading and then you don't enjoy it. And then because of those gaps, you know, you, you struggle in future, etc., as you've described. And for me, it's it's about getting those foundational principles really strongly established. So for young children, I'd, I'd probably equate vocabulary to number bonds mm. in that, that it's foundational knowledge that you must have. And as you become more mature and as you move forward, you know, you don't have as much necessarily explicit focus on, on those things, but you still need to tend to them. Yes. And, and actually... They're always drawing upon their number bonds, you know, whenever they're undertaking a problem and a a little bit like the vocabulary in the, you know, the the problem itself. You want that to be automated. You want that to be, you know, free so they can use all their working memory, all their 
mental bandwidth on the problem itself. And they can do the easy bits and then they're making the complex connections. So I, I do think I think there are lots of parallels with the kind of the complex math problem and the act of reading. And, and for me, it's where explicit teaching breaks down those steps and builds up towards the complexity. And that helps, obviously, you know, the struggling readers and mathematicians, but it helps every mathematician and every reader too to make clear and explicit those steps and build towards complexity. And, and I've, I've had some criticism around vocabulary and that I'm in some way simplifying English as a subject or simplifying the curriculum down to a list of words. And actually, if you read the book, you know that actually words are just part of the fabric yes. of the subject domain. They're not everything. But actually, if you take that thread out of teaching, out of curriculum, then actually it really compromises the strength of the rope. So it's there all the time. It's an integral step. And, you know, through our lifetime, we never stop learning words. We never stop growing and deepening our vocabulary. The issue is, I think, is people like you and I, people who invariably are listening to this podcast, who've been successful at school, we all own that deep, rich 60,000, 50,000 words. And the children who don't go on to own that don't have those opportunities. They don't have interviews where they're able to talk and express themselves. They don't get those job opportunities. And for me, teaching something as simple as vocabulary, just like teaching number bonds, are those initial building blocks to making those crucial life choices where you can actually open doors on life choices. So it seems small and inconsequential, but without it, you can't build to complexity. You can't build to school success. Absolutely. Um, just before we, I ask you a couple of kind of general reflections, just one more yeah. question from me, Alex. Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with writing and the kind of uh, most effective communication and so on. And when I was yeah. writing my book, I was reading everything going on it. And what, one of the pieces of advice that, that comes through is, is keep it simple. When you write and keep the language yeah. simple and so on and so forth. So is there a contradiction there with this recommendation to, to use academic language, to teach kids academic language with the need to kind of communicate as, as simply as possible to, to, to get your point across is, is there some kind of contradiction there or not um, no there isn't um, because I think I think there's a bit of a misconception that academic language is elaborate and complex um, and you know big words and and to a degree it is but skillful use of academic language is often precise and really concise it might have sophisticated terms you know equilateral triangle might be you know for a, a younger child a sophisticated term but actually it's a very precise term that denotes something very specific once you get the label for it actually it's no longer you know kind of kind of elaborate or sophisticated it's quite clear and then you can start to be really clear and concise about your language so you know you give an instruction you include something equilateral triangle you factorize an equation you know if you take factorize an equation as a phrase that's concise it has some fancy terms but once you've taught the terms deliberately once they're understood actually the academic language 
is is really concise and clear. So for me, you know, it's almost like Occam's razor, that really good writing. You cut away at it. You get to the simple thread. I, I think I could have written 500 pages worth on vocabulary, but actually it's quite a short book. Mm. And I wanted my sentences to not be over elaborate too. And that you still need big words in there because yes. those big words are precise. They're really important. But actually, it's not about long, lengthy sentences. So the clarity comes in being concise and precise. The bigger words, well, that's something you have to deal with. And, and that's almost why, you know, why this is a focus. So I, I don't think there's a contradiction. I think if you're trying to put everything into simple language, say if you're trying to put equilateral triangle into student speak, then you probably have to go around the houses <laughs> yes. to explain that when actually that phrase equilateral triangle does the job. It's precise and concise. So I can take a few elaborate words, but then actually our language can be more concise uh, to use the fancy grammar term. What we often do with academic language is we nominalize, we use nominalization. So I give the example a lot um, in science where if a child, if I say to a child about sweat, then they know what that means. You know, we sweat. If I ask them about the word perspire, then straight away, most students would know from, you know, speaking to, speaking to older students. But then straight away, some students might be less secure on that word. Mm. The, the scientific term you're looking for in biology is perspiration. And perspiration means the same thing as sweat. But actually, perspiration is precise. Perspiration means an entire scientific bodily process is wrapped up in that single word. And it's bigger than sweat, but actually it tells us more. It's more accurate. And it's got word parts that can tell us more as well. So for me, academic language sometimes has the bigger words, but it doesn't need the bigger sentences. And if you're able to use those big academic terms you can be accurate and clear and concise with your language i think your book does a pretty good job greg oh <laughs> thank you no nice thanks alex right okay a um, few reflections and then we'll uh, hand yeah. over to you for your big three so first off what, what piece of research would you say has most significantly influenced your thinking or your approach to either teaching or the, the kind of training yeah. and talks that you do now yeah i think i think this was really hard um for the you know for quite a few years now i've kind of just read a huge amount of research it's kind of been part of my job really i've been really privileged so it really was tricky um i think i've left out favorites i kind of you know the whole domain of vocabulary was kind of some of those papers really kind of shook shook what i thought and were really powerful for me um and determined the book um the Statistics around 95% word knowledge needed for um, comprehension of a text and, and then Dan Willing imposed 98% word knowledge required to have a good, strong comprehension of a text. Precise things like that really impacted me. Um, bigger research, so Dunlosky et al. on study strategies, um, that was really powerful, that meta-analysis because actually it made me teach differently yes. um, to my GCC classes. It, it, it led a whole school process where I actually was much more explicit about teaching students how to study. And then it got down to the 
point of how you study on a subject specific level so i'm cheating a little bit i'm throwing a few out there um <laughs> my last one and i think it, it links to earlier and wait time um was mary bud Rowe. so she had a paper back in 1986 um wait time slowing down maybe a way of speeding up and what i love about it it's you know it's kind of one of many favorites that i have but why i like it so much is it does what good educational research should do it answers teachers questions it's both theoretical and you know rich in understanding and it's got some accurate kind of science underpinning the evidence but also it's practical and useful and i took from it and i and i adapted my practice so just that notion that, you know, how much wait time you give students, you know, and the average wait time being one second uh, and how it might look differently and what extended wait time may offer. And actually, I think what I took from that initially, you know, seven or eight years ago when I first read it, I thought, right, well, I just need to give them more time and just simply, you know, count to five in my head. And I and I did move along that process. But. Over time, I start to recognize, well, just more time isn't enough. It's also, it interacts with the complexity of the question. It interacts with who is in front of me and you know, all these other factors. But fundamentally, I think reading that one piece of research shocked me into thinking about some, you know, integral aspect of my practice. You know, we ask hundreds of questions every day, almost unthinkingly. Yes. It, so it shocked that practice. And, and actually, since it's led me to new research, it's led me to inquire about my own practice. And it's just kind of triggered a critical appraisal of my practice and the research and the relationship between them. And I think when research does that and when teachers are supported with that process, that's when research evidence really takes off. And that's when it becomes powerful, social and it impacts on practice. And and in my current role working for the EF um that's that's what i do what, what i try and do in my job is to support that process help teachers get their questions answered you know solve our problems that are rooted in the classroom and and try and use research and mediate expert understanding and actually not replace professional judgment but just really inform it and support it and sometimes challenge it and sometimes you know kind of push back at our misconceptions or our assumptions Super, fantastic answer that flipping heck, Alex. Um, number two, what would be an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Yeah, so this is it's it's a tricky one. This it feels a bit, you know, it's one of those interview questions where <laughs> yeah. you need to give a really intelligent answer <laughs> that shows both your humility, exactly, um, but also your wisdom. Correct. Um, so I'll try one of those. Um, I think, I think in reality. Um, Throughout my writing, throughout kind of um, my reflection as a teacher over the past few years, I think the more you end up reading, the more you reflect on what you do, the more you just expose how little you knew. Um, and I think when I really think back, I just recognize how little I knew as a school leader. I felt actually undertrained as a middle leader, as a senior leader. Um, and one of those processes would probably be grading lessons. Um, so, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that we were all doing it. It was like smoking, you know. <laughs> um, 
and I was the middle leader. Um, even before then, I was having my once a year lesson observation. Remember those where everything fell on that one observation yeah, yeah. and we were either outstanding or we were rubbish. And I can remember the sleepless nights. I can remember kind of jazzing up my lesson disproportionately for that, you know, that one judgment. And then I went on and I just, you know, unquestioningly kind of followed that on. I would undertake those judgments and I was overconfident in how ac- accurate I was. And and that carried on, you know, for a number of years. And I wouldn't say, you know, did I at any point think, right, this is my perspective. I believe this is a good thing. I don't think I did. I just think I assumed that Ofsted is saying these things. Everyone else does them in schools. These are the thing. But then it was, again, this kind of outward looking. When you start to read about assessment, you start to read about lesson observations and you start to you know, have these experts from outside your school challenge you know, your, your, the very foundations of how you lead and teach. I think it was actually critical to my my school my role as a school leader and i think if i think back to listening to rob coe um at research ed and then reading um his article about lesson observation gradings and how basically they're no better than a coin toss and that led me to reading um the gates foundation the huge you know 50 million dollar research in america on lesson gradings um and you know I was lucky to be part of a school with a head teacher and a, you know, a kind of a group of leaders where we quickly all recognized this and and we were kind of early adopters and kind of dropping, you know, this process and dropping other things. But if I think about where that's led and, and maybe this is a general movement around, you know, kind of social media and, and kind of Tez and these other kind of voices engaging with critical research is that now I think much harder about assessment. You know, I think things about testing now that I didn't used to think. I used to think that testing wasn't really a good thing. Now I recognize how testing aids learning yeah. and how it can be done really well. And and ultimately, I could have a list as long as my arm about things I've changed my mind about. And, and in a way, they're all interlinked. And, and the process of just engaging outwards and being critical about what we know is is what underpins all of those. And I think... Even if you look right now at, you know, Ofsted and they've got a new framework and they're stopping looking at internal assessment data. <clears throat> and I think that's almost really strongly connected with stopping lesson gradings in that there's a trajectory there. There's a recognition that oh, this, this grading business isn't very valid. It's, it's quite yes. dubious, not very reliable. Uh, actually, how much do we know about assessment? Oh, you know, all these marking policies, they're a bit dodgy. Oh, you know, and and you start to just kind of break down this edifice that we kind of built over time. And and for me, it's where research evidence, cognitive science, expertise, social media, you know, grassroots, you know, movements like research ed, like teach meets, you know, all, all of these processes seem to have kind of just informed me and for many other teachers. And that I basically changed my mind about a whole lot of things. Superb. Fantastic, Alex. And final reflection. Is there anything you'd wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Um, most of all that I've just described. Um, <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> I, think, I mean, really, there are, there are some books that I think about. I think um, 
there's a John Hattie and Yates book, um, The Science of How We Learn. I can remember vividly reading that, and I then I read um, Willingham and you know why children um, don't like school, and 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 actually I can just think about these milestones of oh god i never really thought of that oh you know i didn't really know that and i think so many there's so many i think if i do come back to i think there are some prevalent offset myths that were particularly corrosive mm, um yes and i think when i started um it kind of it predated the myths but there was a point where about five or six years into my career were the kind of you know everything was about group tasks and kind of you know moving around the room and 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 i you know i recognize dialogic talk really well constructed cooperative learning can be a good thing but it kind of became you know teacher became the guide on the side yes, and actually yes. and to the point i think the absurd end point of that is that teacher talk was demeaned yeah. and that teacher talk wasn't a good thing um you know and i read um privilege of reading andy tarby's book recently about teacher explanations and the very first talks when i kind of started to kind of speak outside of school on the on the back of some ropey blogs i I was talking (laughs) around explanations and feedback and questioning and when you think about it they're almost the holy trinity of good you know explicit teaching from socrates to now you you know you you explain you ask questions you know you give feedback it's this dialogue you know in written form and and in writing and in talk and actually i think i wish that at the start of my career that those fundamental principles of what good teaching is and and that we can be confident in explicit teaching and the expertise of the teacher and we can draw upon the rich complex you know brilliance of students but not give up our professionalism I think I wish I'd known that and and I wish I'd access to a lot of the evidence and understanding I do now because I think I'd have done fewer stupid things. Yes, yeah, that, that that would be my answer as well, Alex. That's yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, it's time to hand over to you now for your uh, your big three. So, what websites or blog posts would you like to direct listeners to? And I'll yeah. put links to these in the show notes. Okay, great. So, I mean, this was a tricky one. I do spend a lot of time. I read a lot of blogs. Um, I kind of key into, I read the weekly, monthly articles. I think it's been part of my kind of professional practice that I've kind of integrated into what I do. Um, so it was tricky, but I wanted to pick ones that maybe aren't so well known, but also relate in part to vocabulary, in part to a really meaningful focus on literacy that is about disciplinary literacy and not about it's kind of, you know, the hackneyed kind of literacy across the curriculum. So my first choice um, is Shanahan on Literacy, um, which is the website of an American professor, um, Professor Tim Shanahan. Um, and alongside his wife and others, um, they're the kind of father and, and mother of disciplinary literacy. And, and they've written lots of great texts around that, but also, the website is just a treasure trove of just great practical responses to reading and writing and literacy and disciplinary literacy and, and the issues that teachers face, every teacher faces. Um, I really like he writes um, answers to people's questions and he also writes kind of, you know, just just lots of blogs and different topics. So that's a good one. Not massively known in England, but it should be. It's brilliant. 
Um, my number two is Reading Rockets, which is another American website. So again, it's it's not as well known over here. I think you know there are fantastic bloggers and websites here. I could I could go on with an, an epic list, but Reading Rockets is really good. It's not just about reading. Um, it's it's about again this kind of loosely about the the domain of literacy. So reading, writing, vocabularies in the you've got vocabulary and mathematics, you've got every subject area, every phase you could think of. It's got lots of evidence, really practical. Um, yeah, it's a great website. And then my number three um, is English. Um, and it's from, um, again, a blogger who isn't in my kind of, you know, English teacher um, sphere. Um, so blogger Ben Rogers, um, who's a science teacher. Um, he's got a brilliant book, um, about big ideas in physics um, and his website is reading for learning um, particularly I was first drawn he wrote a web, um, an article about the characteristics of science vocabulary and some classroom tools I think he does a brilliant job of showing how you can apply a lot of what we've talked about around vocabulary on a subject specific level but actually what that opened up for me is that the blog's just got loads of gems in there and you don't need to be a science teacher to, to gain a lot from it either. So um, that's another recommendation. They're a superb list. And often the same ones come up during a big three, but we haven't had any of those before. So that's superb list, those Alex. Right. And there'll be links to those in the show notes. Um, well, we've we've reached the end of the interview. So just uh, all that's left me to do is to thank you for a couple of things. And first off, for giving up your time. Um, it's, we're recording this not too far before Christmas. It's holidays. I know you've got a bit of a cold. So thank you for, for battling through and uh, giving up your time to speak to me. I've loved every minute of it. Uh, of it. But also the other thing, I wanted to, to thank you for is is the impact your books had now whenever I um, interviewed Greg Ashman for this podcast it was a, a career changing interview for me because it led me to then start reading about example problem pairs and yeah that led led on to my work on intelligent practice and so on and so forth and then when I interviewed Robert and Elizabeth Bjork and read all their stuff that was a game changer for me because it led me on to low stakes quizzes and a thing I call SSDD problems now your book has had a similar impact because you've solved for me a major problem that I've had for 14 years and that's that's how to introduce topics because right. what I've done in the past is try to shoehorn in the most pathetic real-life examples you've ever heard in your life. You know, for, for Pythagoras, well, when will I ever use this, sir? Well, you might be leaning a ladder against a wall and want to somehow yeah, work out yeah. height. All Perfect. this absolute non yeah. all this nonsense. So for years, like, I used them. Then I ditched them. But then what, what filled the gap? Well, after a while, I just kind of started just going in cold in topics. So we just I just teach something to kids. But the kids have nothing to connect it to, nothing to hang it on. Whereas now I've got this simple strategy of the, the etymology and particularly using yeah. the, the, the frame models and stuff. It gives me something I can use every single topic, like whether it's with year sevens, whether it's with year thirteens. And I'm a big fan of kind of consistency. Kids getting the same kind of diet yeah. of things so they get used to it and so on and so forth. So for that, Alex, like it's, it's, it's another game changer for me. This is what I'm going to be doing for the next however many years that I'm, I'm lucky enough to be involved in education, starting topics off like this. And it was through your book that I, I got this idea. So just for that alone, thank you very, very, very much. But on a general point, Alex, just as I say, it's been an absolute, it was a delight to read your book. And I've absolutely loved um, this conversation today. So thank you very much. Cheers, Greg. Thanks for having me. 
there you have it. There was my conversation with Alex Quigley. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Alex was an absolutely superb guest and more than lived up to my ridiculously high expectations that I had of the conversation following reading Alex's book, which I absolutely loved. Now, three pretty big takeaways, to be honest, from me from this particular episode. Three things that have, have genuinely significantly change what I do on a day-to-day basis, both in terms of planning and in terms of delivery. And so the first of which is scripting. Now, this is something that's come up time and time again on the podcast over the last few years. Came up with Greg Ashman. It came up in the Danny Quinn first episode, I think it was. And if you'd have asked me three years ago, would I be up for scripting? I'd have been like, are you joking me? Just go with the flow. Let's see what happens. And it's really interesting this because... And I mentioned this at the end of the David Didow um, takeaway, that whenever you think of lesson planning, or certainly whenever I think of lesson planning, a lot of the emphasis and time goes into producing the resources, whether they're the PowerPoints, whether they're the examples or the practice questions kids do, or the activities. That's lesson planning for me, or it certainly was in the past. Very rarely would I actually think about the explanations or the words that I was going to say. So, for example, if I was writing a lesson plan um, and the first five minutes were a worked example, I'd just put worked example and I'd probably like put a picture of what the worked example was. I certainly wouldn't think or articulate or write down the actual words I was going to say during that worked example. But having read Alex's book and spoke to Alex, that's a potential problem because if I'm not really careful about the words I say, then a lot of it could potentially go over students' head or heads or get misconstrued, misunderstood, and so on and so forth. And it comes back to this curse of knowledge. We all suffer from it as teachers. It's one of the biggest problems of being a teacher is that we are almost by definition a subject expert. So we've got this deep understanding, all these connections in long-term memory, this bank of experiences. So we understand things. And and that can mean if we're kind of operating a bit on autopilot, if, if our concerns are more about the behavior that's going on in the class, or as I say, the resources that we use, and we're not thinking hard about the words we're saying, then we can end up saying words and phrases and terminology that actually students don't understand. And maths is pretty bad for things like this, because we, we mentioned with Alex there, the words prime and similar, which If students don't have a grasp of, they bring their preconceptions in from other subjects into the maths classroom. And actually, they mean different things for us maths teachers. But also, it's true of other words like examine, evaluate, substitute, all these kind of things. That if students don't know what those words mean, then any explanation or any example we give is is potentially going to be less easy to understand for them. So... I'm now thinking in terms of my planning a lot more about scripting the interactions, actually writing down or at least rehearsing in my head what I'm going to say. And John Mason spoke about this. When I interviewed uh, John Mason and Ann Watson, he spoke about planning being a lot in terms of visualizing. So actually visualize what's it going to look like when you're doing this example? What's it going to look like when you're walking around the class helping students out? Don't just say, I'm going to do a worked example, or I'm going to wander around and help kids out, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Picture what it looks like. Close your eyes, visualize it, 
And now for me, say it out loud, what are the words you're gonna use? And I think that's an absolutely key part of planning that often gets overlooked. So that's a big one with me and, and Alex's um, kind of emphasis on the importance of words and how easy they're misunderstood by students has really brought that home to me. And um, secondly, and this has possibly been the biggest change, um, I've got a new way of introducing topics. So I think, I mean, I've had a lot of critics over the last few months, particularly about my kind of ways of doing worked examples and um, using silent teacher and all this, and also my, my intelligent practice questions, which on the face of it look like a boring set of, a boring worksheet, a boring sequence of questions. And I believe there's a lot more to it than that. And don't even get me started on that. I could bang on all day about it. But the thing I wanna focus on here is that I think quite a few people think that that's how my lessons start, that kids come in and it's right, okay, everybody, silent, shut up, here's silent teacher, let's go through it. Now here's some questions, let's crack on. But not at all, the, the way I introduce topics and concepts is really, really, really important. And in the past, I mean, I've been guilty of this. In the past, my default go-to way will be to try and find some real life context. And this is a flipping nightmare. Trying to shoehorn in trigonometry or something like that to say, actually, you know, in the real world, you might use this. And the kids are like, where? And you're like, oh, well, you know, if it's Pythagoras, you might have a ladder leaning against a wall and for some reason you might want to work out the... And all this absolute crap that kids see through straight away. And it's it does more harm than good. So I've scrapped that. So the real life kind of focusing, trying to shoehorn in dodgy real life context, that's gone. And I now like to try and come up with hooks. I think Dan May is great on things like this. And when I interviewed Jeremy Hodgson, we spoke about how kind of problem solving, just having a problem for kids to solve is a hook in itself and taps into this this narrative structure that that seems that students seem to really take things on board because we've evolved to understand stories. So opening up with a hook or a problem, a conflict, and then telling the story about how we're going to solve this throughout the lesson, I, I think that works well. But now I've got a new one. And that's, I mean, I only wish I could say this word. It'd make it a lot more powerful. I'm going to have a go here. An etymology of words. I think it's brilliant because... One problem I think kids have with maths, and it's really understandable, is that a lot of the topics kids are taught in mathematics, they see them as distinct topics or distinct concepts. So this week we're doing fractions, next week we're doing circles, then we're doing data, then we're doing this. And it's like all these different elements of maths. Whereas we know maths is one whole thing, it's one whole language, it's one whole way of thinking. And so I'm always looking for ways to show students that things are connected together, to show them the big picture of mathematics. And looking at a word's etymology is for me now a really, really, really nice way of doing this because I can take a word like polygon or like frequency or like simultaneous and we can look at where the components of that word come from how they relate to other words that have that same either prefix or ending or, or component within that word. And it just helps students firstly get a bit of a grasp about what this new concept that they're about to learn might just be about, but also help them start to see how it links into other things that they've done before. And you can do this with pretty much any word that's, that, that's around. Just look into where that word comes from. What's its historical background? Why is it called that? What language does it come from? How does it relate to other things? And so on and so forth. So, Trying to do that, instead of just saying, here's a list of keywords, 
actually looking at what kind of deep decomposing those words, pulling them apart, seeing where those words come from, I think is a really interesting and really valuable way to start topics off. And of course, and we brought this up in the conversation, just doing that at the start of the topic, then never mentioning those words again, or just mentioning them you yourself in explanations and discussions as a teacher isn't enough. Once they've been introduced to kids, kids have got to have an opportunity to recall what that word means, where that word comes from, how it relates to other things. And they can be involved in low stakes quizzes, homework, starters, and so on and so forth. So I thought that was big. That was massive, in fact, for me. And the final thing is, is just as big, just as exciting. And it's these Freya models or the Freya diagrams. These are flipping brilliant. And it's one of those things, like I, I probably came across these a good few years ago and I thought, oh, yeah, they're quite nice. And it's it's one of those, I, I'm bad with stuff like this. I like, I see these things and I go mental with them for about two to three weeks. And then they just get shoved to one side. Whereas for something like this, it's got to become part of the regular routine, I think, for, for students to start to see the power and feel the benefits of it. And they're absolutely brilliant, these. And there's a load of them around in mathematics. And, and I've got a few plans on the back burner to, to start a more kind of structured collection of these. I'm dreading telling my wife because it's a, I promise I won't be doing any projects, especially with a, with a baby on the way. But I'm very excited about this. So um, I just went on the internet and just grabbed a couple of these. And I'll, I'll put these in the show notes if you actually want to see what they look like. But Freya models or Freya diagrams, essentially, they take a single concept um, and they, uh, they that's in the center of the page. And then you've got it the page broken up into four sections. So the ones that are, the sections that I think are most, most suitable to math, so where you have a definition, where you have facts, where you have examples, and where you have non-examples. So the two uh, examples of these that I'll, I'll share in the show notes and I'll just talk about now, the first is composite numbers. So you have, you have the, the phrase composite numbers. Now, I reckon I could ask my year 11s, what's a composite number? They won't have a flipping clue. They won't have a clue what was going on there. Now, firstly, we can go into the etymology so we can start to take apart composite. Where does that come from? Where have we seen com before and all this kind of stuff? We dig into that. And then we can go into the definition. So the, the example that I found here says uh, a whole number with more than two factors. Then we can look at facts. So we've got things like four is the lowest composite, zero and one are not composites, square numbers have an odd number of factors, two is the only even number that's not a composite, so there'll be lists of facts. Then we have examples, so examples of composite numbers, four, six, eight, nine, 10, 12, and so on. Then we have non-examples, zero, one, two, three, five, seven, 11, 13, 17. Now, that is something that can be filled in together as a class at the start of a topic when you're introducing the concept of composite numbers. And then it's something that can be returned to. So it can be used as, a, um, as, as an assessment. It can be used as a, a, a recall opportunity, start of a lesson, put up a blank frame model and say, okay, Composite numbers, what can you fill in from this? It can be used as a homework. It can be used as revision material. It's like really, really versatile tool. And the other one I found, just to give you another example, is vertex. So that will be at the center, vertex. And then we've got definition, a point where two or more sides or edges meet. Then we've got facts. The plural of vertex is vertices. A hexagon has six vertices. 
Then we've got an example, which in this case is a diagram of a trapezium with an arrow pointing to vertex. And then we've got a non-example. And in this case, it's an L shape with the arrow pointing to one of the sides, not to the corners. And I guess another non-example, we could have a curved line in there and so on and so forth. And it just helps. I mean, I love non-examples just as a general rule anyway, but I like this structured approach. And I think it's versatile enough to be used for a load of topics. And I love that. It means kids get used to it. They get used to filling in this. They get used to this approach. And that for me makes it powerful. It moves away from being a gimmick to being a key kind of learning tool, a key way of summarizing thoughts. So I love these. So as I say, I'm going to, going to share those on the show notes. And um, if you create any of these, get them shared on Twitter. And as I say, hopefully at some point in the future, I mean, uh, <laughs> assuming that father, I mean, in my head, fatherhood's going to be an absolute breeze here. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But hopefully at some point in the future, we can have some way of collecting all these different frame models or fray diagrams together. Anyway, that's enough from me. So all that remains for me to do is a few thank yous. So first off, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. A massive thank you to Alex for, for taking the time to speak to us. Um, I absolutely love the conversation. I got so much from it. I hope you enjoyed it too. And thank you to you, the lovely loyal listener, for keeping on downloading and listening to these episodes in your thousands. And um, if I could ask you for two favours, it's the usual two favours. If you get a chance, review this podcast podcast wherever you get it from just with a star rating or a few words it just helps other people find it and if you've got a colleague who doesn't listen to to uh, this podcast i mean they need to sort their lives out for a start so perhaps tell them that and then recommend them a listen uh, an episode to listen to it might be this episode or it could be any of the 70 over 70 episodes we've done of these now so it could be any of those it could be with the likes of chris bolton Doug Lemoff, Peps McRae, there's loads of them. Nick Rose, David Didow, they're all out there for maths colleagues or non-maths colleagues alike. So please help spread the word. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. Thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourselves and bye for now.